0: bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for salvation. Father, we thank you for you. And Lord, we ask that during the next few moments, Lord, as we spend some time in your word, studying and learning, Father, we pray that you would penetrate our hearts with your active word. Expose our unrighteousness. Father, shine your righteousness brilliantly before us. Father, and help us see how much you have loved us and are loving us and will continue to love us. Help us to be obedient to your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I heard a story about a little boy. And he had been consistently late, late to dinner. And his parents were trying to teach him that when it was time to eat, that he was to put his toys aside and he was to come eat. And he kept being late and kept being late. And so one day he showed up late to the dinner table and he jumped up in his seat and noticed a beautiful meal on his parents' plates and on his plate was a piece of bread, just a plain piece of loaf bread, no jelly, no butter, just a piece of bread and a cup of water sitting there. His face kind of dropped and he knew, he knew what that meant. He was late and now he was being punished. It was time for him to be punished for his lateness, if you will, really for his disobedience to his parents. So his face hung with sadness, and he just stared at his plate. And about that time, he noticed a hand come across. And it noticed his father's hand. And his father picked up that plate that had that piece of bread on it. And that piece of bread moved away. And at the same time, his father's other hand came into view. And it was his father's plate full of food. His father set his plate of food down in front of his son and set the loaf bread down in front of himself. And with a smile on his face, his father picked up that piece of bread and began to eat. And that little boy said later in life that from that day on, he always had a clear picture in his mind of how much God Loved him. As we consider this phrase, behold the Lamb, and we investigate as to what John the Baptist meant when he said, behold the Lamb, he certainly was referring back to the Old Testament scriptures, to the Hebrew scriptures, and many passages that he would have been alluding to, but I think primarily this passage in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through the end of chapter 53. And as we begin to unpack who this lamb is, especially in today's passage, I think we will see the same thing that that little boy saw. We will see a loving father take the guilt upon himself, more specifically placing it upon his own son, and in place of that, we get the blessings, the riches of God himself. In place of punishment, we get blessing. In place of death, we get life. Now, as we have, you can go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 53. If you're not already there, Isaiah chapter 53, this is the fourth of four key passages in Isaiah in which Isaiah speaks of the coming Messiah, the promised one, as a servant. He's often called servant songs or servant passages. This is the fourth of those. And we're just taking our time and walking through this, uh, this uh, passage of Scripture uh, about three verses at a time. And so we've looked at the first six verses of this passage, beginning in chapter 52, verse 13 great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this of Isaiah chapter 53. He said the 53rd chapter of Isaiah is a Bible in miniature. It is the condensed essence of the gospel. I can't agree with that more. If there's a passage that would be worth spending a lot of time and if there's a passage that would be worth Putting to memory, if there's a passage that really summarizes the entire Bible, we find it here in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 52, verse 13, through the end of chapter 53. In the first three verses of this passage, that's the last three verses of chapter 52, we saw that Jesus fits the picture of the exalted servant who wisely rose to the highest throne through great suffering. He is the wisdom displaying servant. In the next three verses, chapter 53, verses 1 through 3, we saw that Jesus fits the picture of the rejected man who strangely revealed the saving strength of God. He is the strength revealing man, that is Jesus. And today we see the sin-bearing Savior. So we pick up in chapter 53, beginning in verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you want a, a just a summary statement of what where we're going today, it's this that Jesus fits the picture of the punished savior who graciously bore the weight of sin for undeserving sinners. Jesus fits the picture of the punished Savior who graciously bore the weight of sin for undeserving sinners. As we walk through this passage, we are seeing that Jesus fits the picture of this servant that Isaiah prophesied about. And Isaiah wrote this about 700 years before Jesus showed up on the earth. And yet, he fits the picture perfectly. And Today, we see that he fits this picture of a sin Bearing Savior. Verses 1 through 3, if you'll remember, reveal that this servant was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. We talked about that last week, but there's really this hanging question as we we end verse 3. And it's the question of why. Why is this servant despised and rejected? Why is he suffering? Why is he full of sorrows and full of grief? Why is he suffering this way? The assumption in the Jewish mind would have been, well, he's suffering for his sins, and he's being punished. Clearly, he's clearly it seems that he's being punished by God, and we can even see that that's what they would have thought in verse four. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God. So it just makes sense that he must have done something wrong. He is being punished for his sins. However, verses 4 and 5 answer this why question very differently. And this is the heart of this suffering servant passage. First truth I want to share with you today is this, that through his punishment, Jesus bore God's wrath toward sinners. Through his punishment, Jesus bore God's wrath toward sinners. That word bore we see there in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. It is placed upon him. Verse four has the same two words that we saw in verse three, sorrows and grief. So some translations use the word sickness. Verse three said that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And verse four says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's not by accident that Isaiah wrote that that way. Verse three leaves us wondering, well, why is he a man of sorrow? Why is he carrying griefs? What has he done? And verse four says it's actually not what he has done. It's what we have done. And He is paying the price for our sins. Jesus was punished. Notice the punishment that we see here in this passage. Notice these words. The the imagery here is striking. Griefs and sorrows. Stricken, smitten, afflicted. Pierced, crushed. Chastisement and stripes. Stripes. Or wounds, the wounds being the stripes, those stripes across his back of the whip, crushed for our iniquities, chastised, punished. Jesus was clearly punished. He was bruised to the point of death. But he was punished because of our sins. Notice why. For griefs and sorrows or where griefs again can be translated sickness, it's that sin sickness. It's the curse that is upon humanity because of our sin passed down from Adam. Our transgressions means to rebel against the law of God. And we have all done that. Our iniquities, our sin, our falling short of the glory of God. Clearly, Jesus is being punished. The servant here is being punished. And he is being punished for sin. The Jews got that right. It was because of sin that he was there hanging on a cross. But here's the irony, if you will, of the story. Here's the thing that just, it just doesn't make sense. It wasn't. His sin. It wasn't his transgressions. It wasn't his iniquity. It wasn't his sorrow and it wasn't his griefs. It was ours. Ours, ours. Notice the repetition of that word. Ours. Our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, and our iniquities. Yes, Jesus was punished. And yes, He was punished because of sin. But yes, that sin belonged to us. Now, fairness would say, then that should be us on the cross. That should be us receiving punishment. That should be us bearing and absorbing the wrath of God. And you would be right to say that. No doubt about it. It should be us taking the wrath of God upon ourselves. But alas, it's not us. It's this servant. It's this one who in chapter 52 is high and lifted up and exalted. It's this king who who at the sight of Him and the sound of Him, all other kings shut their mouths. As we'll see down in verse 9, this one who had done no wrong. No deceit was in his mouth. It is the sinless Jesus hanging on the cross. And so, here's what Isaiah is saying as he answers this hanging question of why. Why is he a man of sorrows? Why is he acquainted with griefs? He is taking our place. The punishment that we deserve in this passage is being placed on the servant. Who we know to be Jesus. He is absorbing the wrath of God in our place. This message today, this passage today, is not a complicated passage. Now, I don't want to make it complicated. if you you can only remember one thing today, I want you to remember this. That Jesus took your place on the cross. And as He hung there, bleeding and bruised and battered and nailed to a cross, He was not enduring simply physical pain. But he was enduring the wrath of God upon himself. God was pouring out the punishment for sin that you and I rightly, justly deserve. And as Christ hung upon the cross, he was pouring that wrath out upon Jesus. Jesus was absorbing the full weight of God's wrath toward our sin. Notice it says that he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, wounded or pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastised and wounded. This is what we call in in a little more technical theological terms, the penal substitutionary atonement. The penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. It's a fancy way of saying that Jesus received punishment for breaking laws, even though he wasn't the one that broke them, but that's a penal punishment. Laws were broken. Rules were broken. But he's a substitute. We were the ones who broke the law, but he is taking our place. And I'm not trying to wow you with big words. I'm saying that because there are some today who would deny that. There are some biblical scholars, but I don't think they're... Christian scholars, but they are biblical scholars. They spend their time studying the Bible who would say that Jesus didn't take our place. That this passage is not about our place being taken. Jesus taking our place on the cross. But clearly it is. It's a penal substitutionary atonement. Atonement is a word that we find all throughout Scripture. We'll we'll probably turn to a place in, in Leviticus in just a few moments where we see that word repeated over and over and over. Atonement is simply a covering for sin. So it's a covering for sin. Think forgiveness. Think the price has been paid. And you think of the word atonement penal, substitutionary atonement. Except we were the ones that should have been punished, but Jesus took our place. And in place of punishment, we get our sins atoned for. We get to be forgiven. And that's where we go to next. Truth number two, through his punishment, Jesus provided God's salvation for sinners. Through his punishment, Jesus provided God's salvation for sinners. So what does Jesus get? He gets our sin. He gets our punishment. What do we get? We get that plate full of mama's home cooking. Right? We get, that, we, we get what we don't deserve. We get salvation. Notice the last part of verse 5. Upon Him was the chastisement, that that word means punishment, that brought us peace. And with His stripes or with His wounds, we are healed. So, He gets punished, He gets wounded, and what do we get? We get peace and we get healing. Let's talk about those two words for just a moment. They're incredibly important words. This peace. What is that talking about? Peace. When we look at that word and take this passage in the context of All of the Bible, we know and we see, we learn that this peace is a reconciled relationship with God. See, here's the truth about your sin and my sin. Here's what sin does. Sin always separates. Sin always separates. There's never a sin that doesn't separate. Doesn't matter what sin it is, doesn't matter if it's one sin or a million sins, sin separates. And it separates us from God. Incredible picture of this we find in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve, Genesis one and two, they have a perfect relationship with God. God is in the garden walking with them, nothing hindering their relationship. They sin, they disobey God. They do the one thing that God had told them not to do. And what happens as a result? They are kicked out of the garden. They're kicked out. It wasn't just, the bad part of that story isn't just that, oh man, this was a beautiful garden. We had all this fruit and we could eat from any of the trees except for this one. And we had all, all, everything, you know, was taken care of for us and all of our needs were were provided for. That was bad enough. But what it symbolized was removal from the presence of God. In the garden, there was God. Outside the garden, there was not. Yes, I know he's omniscient and all-knowing and all-powerful and he's all-present. He's everywhere all the time and all, all those words. But outside the garden, when they looked at God, all they saw was their sin and their separation and knew that they were cursed. Inside the garden, the blessing of God. Outside the garden, cursed. And that's exactly what happens with you and me when we sin. In fact, Scripture says we're born into the world separated from God. We come into this world with a broken relationship. And if we die in that broken relationship, then we will experience a separateness, I think that's the word, from God forever. Separation, there we go. We'll experience separation from God forever. Listen, listen. Listen, this is our greatest problem as humanity. I know we have all kind of aches and pains and illnesses and trials and struggles that we go through. And I don't want to minimize those things. Those things are hard. But those things are simply symptoms of a deeper problem. And that deeper problem is sin. And if we die in our sin, we will be separated from God for all of eternity. Say, so, well, what happens when we're separated from God for all of eternity? We experience the punishment for our sins. We get punished and rightfully so. If we die separated from God because of sin, then we will experience forever and ever and ever. It's an eternal punishment because we have offended. We have sinned against an eternal God. So it's a just punishment. We will experience that separation. We will experience the punishment, this chastisement forever and ever and ever. You say, well, it's probably not that bad. Well, why don't you look at the cross? Tell me if that's bad. Is that what you want to experience forever and ever and ever? The wrath of God being poured upon you? But that's what happens if we die in our sins. So our greatest problem is that we're separated. But notice the good news here. Upon Jesus was our chastisement. Upon Jesus was our punishment. And it brings us peace. Not some kind of temporary peace. Not just a a peaceful, restful night of sleep. But peace with God for all of eternity. It fixes the broken relationship. It puts us back into a right relationship with God. Such a close relationship that Jesus calls us his own, that the Father calls us his own children. That we are co-heirs with Christ. It's like Christ is our older brother and God the Father is our father. Like we're in the family. We're not just, ah, oh, yeah, you can, you can kind of hang around, but you're lower class. We don't really want to be seen with you. No, you're in our family. That's what the Father says. For those who have trusted Christ and what He did on the cross, that relationship is fixed. find these words in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of God. Of the glory of God. We have peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. What about that word healing? That word healing. It's the healing from the brokenness of sin. We find this word several times in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 19 verse 22. This healing is associated with the returning of the Lord. And God listening to the people's pleas and cries for mercy. In chapter 30, verse 26 of Isaiah, this healing is associated with God's restoration of his people. It says this, in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wound inflicted by his blow." I don't have to tell you this. Unless you're really just blinded to sin in your own life and the consequences of it. We're broken people. We are. We're broken people doesn't matter how much you think you have it all together. You're broken. And I'm broken. In our sin, we are broken people. We are physically broken. We get sick. We get diseases. We get cancer. We break bones. We get sniffles. We have to have surgeries and go to the doctor. We're physically broken people. People as a result of sin. In fact, Matthew picks up on this uh, this phrase. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases or our our, our sickness in Matthew chapter seven. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses, and he bore our diseases. He connects healing to the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Now, don't misinterpret that. Be careful with that verse, because I've heard people misinterpret it. They think that because Jesus died on the cross, that means whatever sickness you have right now is going to get better. Yes and no. Unfortunately, what some people mean by that is you'll get better tomorrow. (laughs) Let's just pray the blood of Jesus over you and you'll be healed like not right now. Well, that could happen. God could heal you now or you may never be healed this side of eternity. But God will heal all of our diseases one day when we stand before Him and He wipes away every tear from our eyes and there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow. So don't expect now what God has absolutely promised for the future. We still live in a sin-cursed world and we will experience the, the, the difficulties of living in a sin-cursed world. But because Jesus did go to the cross, we can be assured No matter how much we suffer physical illness in this life, through Christ, we truly will one day be healed. It's not just physical brokenness. It's relational brokenness. Strife between a husband and a wife, a parent, a child, between neighbors, between co-workers, between an employee and a boss, even between friends. There's relational brokenness in our world. There's emotional brokenness. Some of you may be feeling this emotional brokenness today, feeling, feelings of shame, feelings of rejection, or the opposite, the feeling of superiority, which is a brokenness, because we're not superior. God is. There's mental brokenness. Sometimes we just aren't real smart, you know? Sometimes we do dumb stuff. We make poor decisions. We're not wise in our actions. There's a mental brokenness that comes with the fall and there is absolutely a spiritual brokenness where we reject God and we continue to reject God. We choose sin and we experience the guilt. We turn to all sorts of things to fix this brokenness into our lives. I don't know what, what you are turning to to fix the brokenness in your life today. Sometimes we turn to relationships to try to fix the brokenness in our lives. We think that's the answer. Sometimes we turn to a job we think if I can just work harder, make more money, get a promotion, it'll solve these difficulties in my life. Sometimes we turn to substances, alcohol, drugs. Sometimes we turn to entertainment. If I can just have fun, just, just get all this stuff off my mind and I can just just be entertained, just do do my hobby, whatever it is, and i pour myself into that and try to forget about the brokenness. But the brokenness will still be there. Sometimes we turn to ourselves and we think, if I can just be good enough, if I can just make up for the wrong that I've done, then God will be pleased and I won't feel this guilt in my life anymore. But we can't. We can't turn to ourselves. That's why Jesus came. You think he would have come? You think God would have sent his son if we could fix ourselves? No, he would have just told us this is how you fix our fix yourself. Actually, he did tell us how we fix ourselves. Be perfect. Here's the law. Do it perfectly. And and, and you get to heaven. We can't. We're broken. We break the law. We're broken people. And so he has to send his son to take our place to bear the wrath of God. And in place of that, give us this beautiful salvation. Whatever you're turning to today to fix your brokenness, can I just say the words of John the Baptist? Behold the Lamb. Look, pay attention, open your eyes, look at Him here in Isaiah chapter 53. He is the one who has taken the punishment for us. He is the one who can provide us with the peace and the healing that we need. Third truth today. Through His punishment. Jesus displayed God's grace towards sinners. I told y'all this was a simple passage. And I want to keep it as simple as I can. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's kind of a summary verse. Verse 6 of what's already been said in verse 4 and 5. But notice the grace of of God. Notice what we do, what we contribute and what the Lord does, what he contributes. Uh, the, even the phrasing of this verse begins with the words all we and ends with the words we all or us all. All we. We all all we what all we like sheep have gone astray, returned one to his own way. We have sinned. We have transgressed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. One writer said this, it is grace, holy, answering sin. I love that. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Completely, grace, completely answering sin. We are completely sinful and God completely saves. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Notice our completely unmerited favor at the beginning of verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You say, well, wow, that's just talking about the Jews, right? Isaiah, he's a prophet to Judah. He's just writing about Jews. just all those people, all that nation had turned astray. Eh, turn to Romans chapter 3. Paul picks up this verse and applies it to Jews and Gentiles in Romans chapter 3. All we, all the world has gone astray. Has wondered like sheep wandering away from their shepherd. We've wandered from his holiness. We see that in our sin. But notice what else we wandered from. Not just the holiness of God, but we we wander from the love of God. It's not like this is a cruel and mean shepherd that we're running from for fear of him. This is the this is the God, this is a shepherd who loves us immensely. We're made in His image. So when we run from the Lord, when we turn to our own way, we are running from not only the holiness of God, but the love of God as well. The sheep will not correct their wandering without a shepherd. They won't. Go find a flock of sheep that's wandering off. And they'll just keep wandering off. And they'll keep wandering off. That's why they need a shepherd and so we, we, this, this salvation is completely unmerited favor. We have done nothing to deserve it. All we have done is sin, but it is completely God's work. We don't work for it. It's a divine initiative. God pursues us. Notice that it says the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yahweh, the one that we have sinned against, has laid on the servant the iniquity, the sin of us all. I love what one writer said about this verse. He said, while he thus deals with our moral and spiritual needs and our broken personhood, we are not even mentioned except as contributors, which caused his pain. In other words, all we bring to the table. Is our sin. It's all we bring. It's completely unmerited favor. And it's completely God's work. Here's, here's, here's the thing that just jumps out about this passage, the way it's written. Go back to verse 4 for just a second. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We said that that was, that was the Jews saying, well, we, we, we thought that he must have done something wrong. And so God was punishing him for, for sin. And we say, no, 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 that's not right. But it is right. Who was punishing the servant? God. Go to the end of this passage, verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, that phrase, we considered him smitten by God, struck down by God, is actually true. It was God who killed Jesus. If you want even more proof of that, look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It just wasn't for Jesus' sin. It was for our sin. But God is the one who's doing the work. God is the one who kills Jesus. Ultimately, it is God the Father's love for us. He does everything that's necessary. It's completely unmerited favor. It's completely God's work. And it is completely a finished work. It is completely a finished work. All we like sheep have gone astray. And He has laid on the Lord, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. There's a completeness there. We have all sinned. And He has laid all our sins upon this servant. Every bit of it. Do you hear that good news? That you don't have to add anything to what God has done. Nothing. He, he doesn't take our sin and say, I'll pay for this part, but you pay for that part. What did Jesus yell out on the cross? It is finished. A backdrop for this passage, and I think it's a beautiful Imagery of how the Lord loves us. It's Leviticus chapter 16, description of what's known as the Day of Atonement. Without going into all the details of it, I encourage you to go back and read it maybe this week. Leviticus 16. Count how many times you see the word atonement there in chapter 16. See what God had set up for His people was this this mechanism where an innocent animal could be substituted on behalf of the guilty people. And so lots of stuff in Leviticus chapter 16, but it boils down to two animals. One gets killed for sin, and the other priest would lay his hands on the goat as a symbol of transferring the sins of the people to this animal, and they would cast that goat out into the wilderness and just send it on its way and let it walk and walk and walk until they couldn't see it anymore. Beautiful picture of our salvation. And that's the backdrop really for this right here. That Jesus is that sacrificial lamb. And he takes our guilt upon himself. And he dies like that first animal. And he completely removes our sin. As far as the east is from the west from us. Like that second animal. It is a full and complete finished work of Of salvation. The question is. Do you believe it? Remember that question. The beginning of chapter 53. I want us to keep that question in our mind. All throughout this passage. Who has believed. What he has heard from us. Who has believed. Have you? Have you trusted in this Jesus? He is the only way. This is God's plan of salvation. This is the sacrifice that God has put forward and will accept on our behalf. Romans chapter 3. Listen to this passage and we're going to wrap up. Listen to this. This is the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit explaining that Jesus is the picture, fits the picture of Isaiah 53. You ready? This is this is Paul saying Jesus is that one. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Who's he talking about? Well, Isaiah, he's one of the prophets. They bear witness the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned. Right. That's coming right out of Isaiah for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, it's a free gift, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Probably the most confusing word there is the word propitiation, but it's probably one of the most important. It's what I was saying at the very beginning of this this message. To be the propitiation means to be the one that absorbs the wrath. Satisfies the wrath of God. That's what the servant does in Isaiah chapter 53. It's what Paul says Jesus did in Romans chapter 3. That's what I want to say to you today that Christ has done. He has taken the wrath for you. But that word pops up multiple times in Romans 3. For those who have faith. For those who believe. So here's what that means. If you haven't believed in Christ. Trusting in his finished work on the cross. Then you are wandering in your sin. Turning to your own way. And if you die that way. The Lord will lay on you the iniquity that you deserve. But if you will repent, turn from your sin and look to Jesus, behold the Lamb and trust that what He did on the cross was enough to satisfy God's wrath towards your sin and that He did all the work, everything necessary to save you is done in Christ. If you will trust that, giving your life to Him, and what Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 says will be true of you that though you like a sheep have wandered astray the lord has laid on him on jesus all of your iniquity listen and think Just picture the cross for a moment. Think about all that Jesus suffered and endured. That should have been you and me. But Jesus stepped between us and Judas's kiss. Jesus stepped between us and the soldiers' punches. Jesus stepped between us and the whip that destroyed His flesh. Jesus stepped between us and the spit and the mockery. Jesus stepped between us and the crown of thorns. Jesus stepped between us and a cross. He stepped between us And hammered nails. He stepped between us and the wrath of God. And he is the only way of salvation. Jesus fits the picture, y'all. And no one else does. Jesus has paid the price. No one else will pay it for you. He exchanges His righteousness for our sinfulness. He takes the sin and gives us His righteousness. And it's a free gift. Will you behold the Lamb and accept Him, trust Him today? If you would, just close your eyes and bow your heads and just Think about you for a moment. I asked you to think about the cross. And now I just want you to think about you. Just, Just for a moment. How does God see you? Does He see you as someone who has surrendered their life to Jesus Christ? Does He see you as one that He has saved because you have trusted in Jesus alone? Or does He see you as one wandering like a sheep Going your own way. I just want to give you an opportunity to just, to just to talk to God and trust in Him. Right now. it's no magic words. No kind of chant or anything that you gotta say or do. It's simply confessing your sin to the Lord and saying, God, I am worthy of your wrath. That's the only thing I'm worthy of. All I have to offer you is my sin. But God, I, I believe, I trust that you loved me so much that you sent Jesus to absorb the wrath in my place. That he died in my place. And today, I'm tired of carrying around the guilt of my sin. I'm tired of trying to fix the brokenness on my own. But today, Lord... I want to say, I can't do it, but I believe that Jesus has done it. He has paid the price, and today I want to give my life to him. I believe in Jesus for salvation, and I want to belong to you forever and ever. Heavenly Father, just in in this moment, Lord, I pray that there's anyone who has never turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus, I pray that right now would be the moment of salvation for them. Father, I can't help but think that in a room with this, this many people, Father, that there would not be one or two or maybe more, that maybe have heard this message before, but have never considered just what you did. And sending Jesus to die on the cross. Father, maybe they've never realized that Jesus really stepped in between them and death. Them and your punishment. Father, right now I pray that you would save them. As they place their faith and trust in Jesus. Father, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, we just want to cry out, thank you. Praise You, Father, for saving us, for rescuing us, for taking our sin and giving us Your righteousness. And Lord, we, we look forward to the day when we can thank You in person. When we look upon the Lamb who was slain, Jesus our Savior, with His nail-scarred hands and feet, sitting upon the throne. And we know that we're only there in His presence. Because He paid it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.